That's, I think, the art that we as designers of the urban realm often take for granted, but it's kind of an, an instilled sense of art can be just kids playing in, in a park. It can be people simply enjoying that space and coming back, repeating and making that restaurant or food court successful, enjoying a concert. And then art can also be the detailing of how that bolt and nut came together to a custom solution of a shade structure. Hello, and welcome to Art Restart, where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, brought to you by the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. In our last episode, I got to interview Art Restart's first fashion designer guest. Well, this episode marks another first for the podcast, our first landscape architect. His name is Daniel Woodroff, and he is the founder and president of DWG, a landscape architecture firm in Austin, Texas. Founded in 2010, DWG quickly became a leader in sustainable design and low-impact development. The firm has worked on projects all over the world, but has made a particularly deep impression on the landscape of its home city. One of DWG's most remarkable years-long project finally came to fruition when in August of 2021, Waterloo Park, at 11 acres downtown Austin's biggest green space, opened to the public. Daniel's company served as the local landscape architect team for world-renowned landscape architect Michael Van Valkenburg. Waterloo Park is a gorgeous urban oasis that features a one-and-a-half-mile hike and bike trail, sinuous bridges, expansive lawns, and a 5,000-seat amphitheater that has quickly become a premier music venue. The park is also universally accessible with barrier-free design. What a casual visitor might not necessarily know or notice is that the park was created to reclaim an urban overflow creek that over the years had not only often flooded, but become a dumping ground. Now, thanks to DWG's work, the creek's water has been harnessed with engineering finesse to allow a wide array of plants native to Austin's ecology to flourish, as well as benefit local birds and pollinators. Daniel spoke to me from his office in downtown Austin. As I learned about his work, it struck me that a landscape architect has to collaborate and negotiate with a mind-boggling array of stakeholders, including city bureaucracies, grantors, clients, and engineers, among others. I started the interview by asking him how, through all of those negotiations, he managed to maintain his own artistic vision and to protect his artistic spirit. Passion. <laughs> mm. um, I, I think there is an inherent sense of whether you are a a fine master painter or a sculptor or an architect, landscape architect. There is an attitude of we all have a common thread of, of telling stories about interpreting a story about the place or the element that we are referencing or being inspired by. And so Many of our projects lean heavily into the attitude about art and landscape and the sense of the built environment. And while you're right, I mean, I think I often consider landscape architecture as 
being this giant pair of knitting needles that are braiding and binding all the disciplines together about interpreting the necessity of a civil engineer's pipe layout from stormwater management to do you have to do it that way and can we expose it, make it beautiful, make it into a rain garden to the attitude of placing buildings on sites and, and looking at shade and sun and human comfort. And then sometimes that human comfort can become an artistic interpretation of telling the story of water and clouds and a shade structure and developing this perforation and shadow pattern. And so I think you obviously have to listen to the stakeholders and your clients. I mean, we are at its most fundamental level, I like to think good listeners, but also good storytellers too. And storytelling is really creating a place that has a certain je ne sais quoi, has a, something you can't quite put your finger on when you're in that space, but it feels great. It either is entirely about the, the place, you know, uh, being historic or ecological or taking advantage of a view, or you can just sit in an urban plaza and go, this is amazing. I don't quite know why. Maybe it's the sound of the water. Maybe it's the shade. Maybe it's the bustle of people, the clinking of coffee cups and so on. But that's, I think, the art that we as designers of the urban realm often take for granted, but it's kind of an, an instilled sense of art can be just kids playing in, in a park. It can be people simply enjoying that space and coming back, repeating and making that restaurant or food court successful, enjoying a concert. And then art can also be the detailing of how that bolt and nut came together to a custom solution of a shade structure. So I think it's it's a really complex question and I think complex answer, but I think every artist has to effectively resonate with either the spirit of the time or the thing they're inspired by or the client that hired them to do X or Y. Well, now that you've brought up story and art and storytelling, can you tell us the story of a project of yours that you're proud of us, proudest of for both its aesthetic merits and its commitment to equity and sustainability? Mm, just one. <laughs> um, or you can cherry pick up yeah, to you. Yeah, no, I am. Um, Perhaps I can kind of lead a, a little kind of breadcrumb story. Um, yeah. About 10 years ago, we started a, a campaign of looking at Congress Avenue, which is defined as the main street of Texas. It goes from the Capitol to the lake to into South Austin. So this was just when your company was only two years old, it sounds like. That, right? Yes. Yeah. The notion of tactical urbanism was, was really coming to a forefront of conversations Janet Sadek Khan and Mayor Bloomberg were engaging Snohetta to do the redesign of Times Square. And so there was this real sense of energy and buzz about reclaiming the urban realm for people, not necessarily for these one-ton clunky things with four wheels. And within that, a conversation started on Congress Avenue about doing pilot projects, pilot projects to effectively rent parking spaces and turn them into these pocket parks. And they were in Austin called pocket patios because they had to be by virtue of the code that was written and established that we helped to write actually was defined and tethered to a retail outlet or a restaurant or a cafe. And so there had to be kind of a food and beverage transaction associated with these patios. 
what started there with one parking space has really kind of blossomed into now dozens of these things up and down Congress Avenue and throughout the city about changing the perception of the public realm, particularly the attitude of in America. I don't think anyone could 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 doubt that American cities largely have been driven by the automobile, by highway, by the sense of car and convenience. And so Congress Avenue being a six-lane albeit 40 mile an hour, but highway through the center of Austin. And 85, 87% of that right-of-way is, is for cars. And, and then the humans are kind of stuffed on the edges. And so we wanted to challenge that and say, what if you actually started to build back better and actually address these social issues of making the space more equitable, more sociable, more economically robust, help the businesses? Little did we know that those pocket patios would be the mainstay of how the restaurants stayed in business during covid i mean oh. it was it was an absolute unintended consequence of suddenly they were the lifeline of outdoor dining in the right of way because had they not been there when covid hit the restaurants would not have had as much access to outdoor seating yeah or or, or you would have been kind of relegated to sitting next to the fender of a car you know as opposed to an, an orchestrated organized space and, and and in new york it was fascinating to see these kind of makeshift timber shed like structures with plastic sheeting pop up everywhere and what i found more fascinating was that they've largely stayed as businesses has come back because people enjoy that interaction of sitting on the street and all of that that kind of prologue kind of spun up into a, a dialogue that we were having about reclaiming public open space. And there was a 1980s building at Second and Congress called 111 Congress, where the owners were looking to reinvent it, to, to give the lobby a, a little bit of lipstick and makeup and freshen it up for a new round of tenants coming into the building. And that dialogue grew about public open space and about plaza and a three-quarter acre sunken plaza that was largely fenced in, enclosed, privatized, and accessible really only to the handful of people that smoked in the building and a couple of dog, walker, dog walkers relieving their dogs. And it became a project called Fairground and was an attitude towards changing and blurring the boundaries between public and private realms about introducing Austin's first food hall uh, within a, a three-quarter acre plaza that then changed the dynamics of public open space and introduced a conversation about, you know, why pour 250,000 gallons of AC condensate down the drain every single year, which the building had been doing since it was built. Why not collect and harvest that and use it for the landscape, irrigation? Why not create a fountain feature that utilizes that water once treated, atomizes it into cloud and cools the plaza and have all of these stories. And I mentioned about the artistic interpretation of a shade structure. And we imagined a shade structure in that plaza and called it Nimbus because Nimbus is a low cloud that hangs in a valley in the morning. And the shape of the structure and the perforations of that structure are designed to evoke this image of a cloud. And so it all started to become this subliminal story of the public realm, public open space, bringing people back together, but also a story about 
native plants and water reduction and sustainability and how a building can become more sustainable as well within an ecosystem of the urban realm. You mentioned that you were involved in rewriting some uh, building codes or planning codes. How so? In Austin, uh, when the conversation of the pocket patios was was in play, the Downtown Austin Alliance was one of the key sponsors. There were several council members and policy aides that were clearly motivated to see these things happen. But city code prohibited or at least there wasn't a mechanism to allow these things to occur, to rent a parking space or to take a part of the right-of-way, even on a temporary basis. It kind of created these double negatives every single time. It's like, doesn't translate to code, can't do it, can't do it. And so it started with a pilot project uh, that was a year long to test and measure the metrics of success, both social traffic transportation are the cars and car users going to freak out because there's a patio in that parking space will the adjacent businesses suffer because they don't have a parking space in front of their business anymore and then what are the what are the metrics of success from environmental social and economic impacts and maybe stating the obvious it was a wild success in every measure the business that sponsored the space flourished in terms of having 30 extra places to sit outside and their revenue for lunch and dinner sales and and coffee sales went through the roof. What was interesting, the adjacent businesses also saw a marked interest in trip counts or sales because of people lingering, pausing, stopping. Oh my goodness, there's a jewelers there. I didn't ever notice that. You know, those kind of just incidental moments. And because of those metrics, we were able to sit down with the city code officials and write, uh, firstly, a resolution to herald the success of this pilot project and then inform a new portion of the city code to enable these. And then lastly, to help write a design manual to say, not only here's the lessons learned, but here's a path to success with an expedited permitting process and a manual of do's and don'ts to enable you to build these things safely but also uh, efficiently. One thing that I love to talk to our guests about is reinventing outmoded systems so that they can be more ambitious and successful in their artistic work. So I'm wondering if there is an existing system, whether in the training of landscape architects, how they're expected to develop their careers, how American cities are built, that could be modified or reinvented and could make your work much easier and benefit American cities. Sure. You know, as a landscape architect, you know, I would be remiss to say, you know, we need more trees. And, and, and I'm not trying to say that as a cliched thing, but we also need not only to look at trees, but there needs to be a, a keener attitude towards water and soils within the urban fabric. And there are some really fascinating I mean, national, international projects that look at soil volumetrics, capacity for stormwater management, reduction of flooding, reduction of city resources, attitudes of water, you know, living in Austin, in central Texas on a latitude that is the same as the Sahara Desert. It's hot in the summertime, but it's also humid. 
and every building downtown uses an air conditioning system and pours millions of gallons of water, air conditioning sweat, into the sanitary sewer every single year. Why not harvest that? So I think there are some really kind of monumental things that as designers that inform policy and standards moving forward that we as designers, as landscape architects, as architects need to be more aware of our profound ability to inform positive change, to have huge, meaningful impacts on not only the way that cities are built and the way that we all live about human comfort, but about the way we're sustaining our ability to even be on this planet by having meaningful reductions of energy or resources and positive impacts towards climate action and climate change. I think there is also a wonderful shift presently about this kind of outdated engineering edict that an American city has to be built driven by the turning radius and miles per hour of a car. And that time and time again, highways have proved really only one thing, that the bigger you make them, the worse the traffic gets. And there's this model called induced demand. And at the same time, there is a big push, I mean, globally, to readdress the connectivity of our cities, of our urban places. And Austin alone is going through a multi-billion dollar transportation initiative to build rail and subways through downtown and about building better trails and bike connectivity and bus connectivity. But at the same time, the state is looking to expand I-35 and just build a bigger highway. And it just seems that there's this unfortunate kind of tension about do you really need to or do we need to just think smarter about how mobility is rapidly changing with the advent of electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles and do you even need all the space you thought you used to have and i think as designers there needs to be i think a greater emphasis on the capacity to influence that change When we talk about green space and social equity, one of the realities, certainly in American cities, is that there's a shockingly high correlation between access to green spaces and trees and wealth. So I'm wondering, what can socially conscious landscape architects like you do to ensure that equitable landscapes pervade urban areas, not just wealthier neighborhoods and commercial centers? That's a great question. There there is a, I mean, policy, one but also an attitude of, of focus. We've worked with, uh, with an organization called Raising the Sun. They're an East Austin kind of community fabric about uh, empowering underserved or underprivileged African-American community groups in, in Austin. And some of their most profound work has been about street cleanups or just planting a tree or building a five-a-side soccer field in a neighborhood vacant lot to doing a lot of mural work. And and so we've we've kind of followed and hung on to the the coattails that Raisin has had and have been enjoyed collaborating with with her and her organization on a number of projects. And I think again, getting out there, having a voice, being part of the tree folks or the Austin Parks Foundation tree planting days and, and encouraging trail access and and you're right. I mean, it, it's it's very easy to get 
sucked into this kind of vortex of new shiny fancy parks in in in, in any part of a city but it's also vital to think about that pocket park that kind of cleanup program the simple notion of of gorilla tree planting in in rights of way and things like that that um <laughs> does that does that happen absolutely I didn't know that. it's absolutely yeah i mean the uh, whether it's you know gorilla community planting beds where there are tomatoes in the right of way or or just yeah i mean there was a big program of started happening years ago and i think someone publicized it in san francisco that someone started planting the roundabouts and in, in, in cities, and, and no one could figure out what was going on. And uh, yeah, it happens all the time. But I think that the unfortunate reality is the American city is there are still desperate kind of uh, inequities of the haves and haves nots, and landscape, the public realm, landscape architecture can have a profound impact on on raising the sense of civic pride or sense of place. Or I mean. Parks and open space, when managed and kept clean and safe, have significant benefits and indicators on reduction in crime, tree planting, clean streets. I mean, these things have social and kind of, um, they, they can have paradigm shifts in terms of how people perceive their community. And I think we do have an, a, an embodied role to you know chase the next shiny object, but also think about where we live, how we live, and how we want to as designers of the public realm, our most important client are our community members and our neighbors, not just the person paying the bills. And there's nothing more heartwarming and uplifting and bring you back to work the next day than just sitting quietly in a plaza or a pocket park or an area where there was a mural done and seeing people genuinely enjoying that space. You know, hang, do you do that? Out. Do you do you go visit and hang out in your completed work? Oh yeah, and watch people. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, it's um, it's probably the highest accolade you can get by just being quiet and watching people enjoying. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah, it gives me gives me goosebumps. Just that's the get up and go, wake up in the morning moment of what are we going to do that's cool that will inspire a generation today. How do you make sure that everyone at your firm cultivates an artistic spirit? Um, practice what you preach. In fact, somewhat well-timed in, in terms of us talking today. In, in 2010, we, we, we looked to celebrate you know, 10 years of the firm. It was a, a hugely important moment for me and for the partners of the firm. Hugely important for everyone to to have achieved so much in such a relative short period of time. And back then, uh, we made a commitment. We were like, "Okay, we're going to take the entire firm on a trip, and we're we're going to immerse the firm in the DNA of the firm." And that that trip was a trip to the United Kingdom to go to Cambridge and go to London, two cities where I grew up, to see. A little bit of a trip down memory lane, a little bit of what makes Daniel tick, but also a deep immersion into two contemporary modern European cities to really immerse people in in travel, in culture, in food, in places that they right and modern would, cities that are built on centuries of history as opposed to centuries. America, which yeah. is built on one hundred or one hundred fifty um, years of that, right. Yeah, and then of course, COVID kicked that plan in the pants, and we couldn't go. Uh, but we go this June, 
and the entire firm is 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 heading off for a week and to say that we're excited and terrified about 37 people running around london is is an <laughs> understatement but it's going to be amazing and 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 i think i don't know of another firm anywhere that has saved like crazy over 10 years to enable a trip that is all about celebrating the values of the firm and bringing everyone together and and i think in in today's so that's society, interesting you had you had the foresight to you knew you were going to want to do this at some point celebrate so yeah i mean celebrating a 10 year anniversary of a firm is is no small uh, uh, feat anyway but no we 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 planned it years in advance knowing that just the logistics alone of 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 booking you know hotel rooms and flights and everything um and making sure that everyone that our clients are aware that that everything fits in place and that we've hit the deadlines and we're ahead of schedule and then we can you know shut the doors and yet still be accessible to our clients because of the powers of technology but yeah it it, it it's a huge commitment but it's something that i think you know the American landscape of employment, particularly in architecture and design right now, is crazy. Um, it, it's incredibly busy. And we strive very, very hard to make a firm that not only practices and preaches a different dialogue of landscape architecture, but is also culturally truly unique uh, in terms of how we embrace remote working or the attitude of just celebrating everybody's birthday those little things but then being able to say heck yes we're actually going to do this trip and it's actually going to happen it wasn't just something nice that the principal said at the meeting just to get people excited and then we forgot about it so yeah it's it's going to be amazing if you'd like to learn more about daniel and read a longer version of this interview please head to uncsa.edu slash artrestart. You'll also be able to see photos of some of the projects he discussed in the interview. Hey, you're subscribed, right? Yeah, I thought so. Thank you. We're delighted to have you along for this amazing eye-opening ride. I don't know about you, but these days I find it very easy for my baseline state to be just pessimism, (laughs) but... I have to tell you, these interviews always make me feel hopeful. Artists in every field are imagining and creating various ways for communities, artistic and not, everywhere to thrive. And that is a huge relief. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, and on behalf of the Keenan Institute for the Arts, thanks so much for listening.